This is The Guardian. Today, how to make the most of your memory in 2024. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. The chances are that you're listening to this while you're doing something else. Maybe you're idly scrolling through your phone or doing the washing up. Perhaps this is on in the background while you clear out your wardrobe or catch up on work emails. But in the spirit of the new year and a chance to do something differently, I'm going to boldly suggest that you stop. Because if you're like me and you wonder about the health of your brain, if you wish it could help you remember better and you could improve how you keep the important facts in, well, you'll want to just focus on this next conversation. That's really the truth of memory in general is that less is more. The less that you can remember and the more quality, the more information you can pack into every memory, the better you will do. And our brain is constantly prioritizing quality over quantity. And that's why our attention is so limited is because it allows us to get the most information out of something. Dr. Charan Ranganath is a foremost expert in the science of memory and author of the forthcoming book, Why We Remember. So who better to help us understand more about how modern life is really affecting our attention spans And how might we use some of that optimistic New Year energy to declutter our minds? From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, understanding why we forget and how to remember what we need. Charan Ranganath, you're a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California and the author of a new book titled Why We Remember, The Science of Memory and How It Shapes Us. Now, I've got to let you know, firstly, that I've been extremely conscious of trying to retain every bit of information I've read from this book. So, you know, thanks for that in the first instance. (laughs) But before we get into the detail, could you tell me a bit about your background and how you came into neuroscience? So I grew up mostly in San Jose. My parents immigrated from India, and I immigrated when I was less than one year old. You know, when I was growing up in California, I was the only brown person in my neighborhood, so to speak. And it was a pretty racist neighborhood. (laughs) And so basically, the people in my neighborhood made it pretty clear that I didn't belong there. Kind of felt always a little bit like an alien trying to figure out how to blend into normal society, so to speak. And I think that probably is one of the things that led me into psychology was this idea of trying to figure out how people think and this 
genuine feeling of not understanding how people think. Well, you talk in the book, which I do have to emphasize, it is fascinating just to have all these like things that you sort of semi-understand, clarified so neatly. But you talk in the book about the experiencing self and the remembering self. Can you explain the difference there and what that means? Yeah. So Danny Kahneman argued in his book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, that essentially there's in the moment we have something called the experiencing self, which might allow us to think and feel whatever we do. And we tend to assume that whatever we think and feel in the moment, we'll remember later just as we experienced it. But in fact, he argues that the remembering self is different. And the things that you remember aren't equivalent to the things that you experienced. And that idea has been borne out again and again in memory research that we don't remember everything and we're not supposed to remember everything. In fact, we're designed to forget most of what we experience, really. That has to be reassuring for some of us listening, <laughs> just frustrated with our inability to remember so much stuff. But if you're saying it, it's not always important, then I'm taking that as gospel. Oh, no, I'm. this was a major impetus for writing the book. You know, I'm not the kind of person who likes to tell people what to do, I kind of lean more towards anarchy in life. And so, uh, but more than that, I really felt like we're in this culture of optimization right now, and everybody's trying to hack their brains to be better and better. And I think the point that I wanted to make in the book is if our brains aren't designed to remember more and more and more, how can we remember better? And remembering better to me is not about being able to necessarily remember phone numbers or remember appointments because that's what we can outsource to our technology. But to me, remembering better is being mindful of how memories shape our decisions, how memory shapes our well-being, how memory shapes our understanding of ourself or our ability to function as members of a society. So in some ways, impetus was to almost correct the science of memory, which can often be misunderstood. And the fact that it's not about how much you remember, but how you use your memory itself. That's exactly right. Yeah, I should use that line. <laughs> that's, that's terrific. I have a hat that I wear as a memory researcher. And then in, a, in my daily life, I don't necessarily wear that hat. And so lots of times I find myself kicking myself for forgetting things. And Every day I'm forgetting, where did I put my phone? Where did I put my glasses? One of those two things are lost every day. In fact, I still can't. It's been five days. My office keys, I still can't find them. I have to call my gym to find out if I left them there. This is, this is not what I expected to hear from you. Even though I've read the book, I'm, I'm still, I find it, I mean, everyone has this experience, mm -hmm. right? It's so frustrating to walk into the room or open a browser on your phone or try to remember the name of a new colleague. Charan, why does it happen so often? Uh, it happens so often because the things that we forget the most often are the things that we deal with every day. So, for instance, it's not like you just experienced one day with your keys or one day with your phone. We put our phone, our keys, our glasses in zillions of places over the course of our lifetime. And so the problem that you have is not necessarily do I ever remember where I put my phone at any time in my life, but where did I put it today? And so if mm. you think about it, that's a really hard problem for our brains to solve. Likewise, names. There's nothing 
that ties logically a, a name with a face. It's completely made up, right? So you can call me Charan, and if you saw my face right now, you could try to put the two together. But there's nothing that makes that sound go with my nose and my hair and so forth unless you think of something. So if you're not one of those people who puts their keys in the same place every time, you've got to be intentional when you just put it down on the coffee table. It's the coffee table and there's a cup there that I need to move. Or it's the bathroom sink and it, the key is now wet. Like you've got to like retain a tiny bit of extra detail. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So if you have a habit where you put it in the same place every day, then those memories aren't competing with each other. They're actually working together. They're playing together, right? But if you put them in random places, as I do when I'm in a hurry and I get home from work, Me too. Uh, then what's happening is, is that you have that competition. And so you want to be able to have something that gives you a richer sense of where you put your keys today. Some kind of a sensory detail is really good. The sights and the sounds that are happening when you put your keys somewhere. But after I turn 50, every time I forget something like this, I ask myself, okay, is my am I losing it? Is my memory getting worse? And, and so it scares me. And then I have to put on my memory researcher hat back and say, Yes, it's okay. You're doing all right. Don't worry about it. Well, if that's the case, why does it feel like I can't remember stuff or retain information as well as I used to? And I'll give mm -hmm. an example. I used to have very encyclopedic knowledge of songs, release mm -hmm. dates, when something came out, what the name of this bit part actor was, which piece of pop culture history is connected to what. I just don't have that capacity anymore. Is my brain full? No, it's definitely not full. My head is full of meaningless factoids like that. Believe me, I, I spent most of my childhood watching dumb TV shows, uh, whatever American TV had to deliver. So I, I have such a massive database of pop culture. It's mind boggling. I think the thing is, is that, number one, I can look back on my memory and in fact find that, yeah, I probably did remember things and learn things a little bit faster than I did when I was younger. And on the other hand, I think... When we look back, we often say, okay, what's the evidence that I used to remember better when I was younger? Oh, well, I remember this and I remember that. But you don't think about all the things that you've forgotten because you can't remember them. So Fair. I think uh, this is a great example of the kind of biases that the remembering self can give you, right? Is that you look back on your life and you say, well, here's what I remember. And you use that as a... Uh, a compass for where you're at now. But I think a lot of us can recognize the frustration of wishing that you could, you know, dislodge the storyline of a 90s Australian soap <laughs> and actually retain information about the nuances of conflict in Armenia, for instance. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, how do you, how does your brain balance that information? Yeah. So I think the thing is, is that the two are not really fighting against each other all that much, right? I think most of our everyday forgetting is not because we lack this plasticity or our brains are full. I mean, I think most memory researchers would agree. It's really that we're not attending to what will allow us to keep that memory and make it stick. So you've taken me neatly to the question, Charan. Can you break down how memories are formed in the first place? 
to give you an idea of how memories are formed in the first place, it's useful to understand a little bit about how we think thinking happens in the brain. The basic computing unit in the brain is a neuron. So those are cells in the brain that communicate with each other and they communicate by these chemical signals, right? And so what happens is, is that essentially we think that when you have an experience, there's a change in the efficiency with which one neuron can talk to another neuron. And so some neurons might strengthen their connections and some neurons might weaken their connections, all right? So that's the most basic level at which the process works. And then the second part of it is that we think that memories are in this ecosystem, mm. right? So it's not just one thing that we are trying to remember, but they're really competing with all of these other kinds of memories. What you want to be able to do to avoid that competition is focus on things that are as distinctive as possible that make this experience very different than the previous experience. Well, Sharon, two things you talk about, and I imagine a lot of neuroscientists talk about, is the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Can you briefly explain what the two do and what some of the factors are that impact how each functions? Yeah, so... We know that the hippocampus is uh, this ancient brain region. So there's one theory that the hippocampus's original function was to tell us where we are and to help us navigate in the world. And I think that the modern view would be that the hippocampus orients us not only in space, but also in time. And so what we think we use the hippocampus for is as a librarian that's sorting out our experiences in time and space so that we can go back to past contexts that we've been in and pull up a particular event from our lives. So it's that ability to go back and say, yes, I remember this picnic that I had with my family two months ago, right? You can travel back to the past in your mind and be able to pull up that event. But there's another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. So in the human brain, prefrontal cortex is about one-third of the neocortex, or the kind of crinkly, wrinkled area of the brain that you see if you look at it from the outside, right? So one-third is a huge fraction. Well, what's it doing? We think that the prefrontal cortex is what allows us to use our goals to focus on what's relevant and likewise block out what's irrelevant. Also, that takes me to one of the most striking things about the book, and there are many, but something that might, um, I don't want to say alarm listeners, but it certainly alarmed me. But <laughs> this idea that we, when we're multitasking, when we're toggling between double screening, you know, watching the telly on your phone, or when you're like doing several things at once, and you have this sort of false impression that, oh, I'm just keeping my brain limber. I'm just so good at all these things. You write that it actually impairs memory, it has a detrimental impact. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is a very hot topic in the field right now is this idea of what's called media multitasking. So, for instance, we're trying to be on our phone at the, at the same time, maybe text messaging and at the same time, you know, flipping back and forth between text messages and reading something and so forth. And we often feel like, OK, I'm being more efficient when we do this. But in fact, what happens is every time you switch from one thing to another, 
there's a cost in that. And that cost is actually sapping the resources of the prefrontal cortex. From a memory perspective, it's even worse because what happens is every time I switch from one thing to another, my brain is saying, okay, here's another memory. Oh, here's another memory. But we're forming a big pile of crummy memories because we're not really there in the first place every time we switch back and forth. And at the same time, now we're creating more and more of this clutter in our brain that's all competing with each other so that we could have an hour go by and then later being like, well, what happened? What did I do in that hour? And you often don't know, not because nothing happened, but because you were switching back and forth so much that you weren't really there in the first place. So, Charan, in the era of the smartphone, in theory, it should be impossible to forget days, memories, itineraries, when you have, you know, this constant stream of photos and calendar notifications and emails to look back on and so on. But, you know, is anyone old enough to remember a time before them or a time before you didn't outsource all the facts in your brain to a quick Google search? It doesn't necessarily seem to have helped. I mean, is there truth in the feeling that documenting everything... And that tech is harming my memory rather than helping it. You know, I'm not a Luddite about this stuff. I think that technology has a lot of um, potential to improve our daily functioning. So just the fact that I I do remember the time (laughs) when I had to memorize phone numbers and now I I could barely remember my phone number because I don't have to. I outsource that to my phone. Uh, Likewise, I outsource appointments to my phone. The problem comes in when we don't use the technology well. So if we try to mindlessly document every moment that we have in our lives, say with uh, photographing things and then constantly posting that stuff, we're not in the moment and we're creating a lot of competition in memory. I think the mistake that people make is they spend too much time on their phones and they don't use their technology in the right way selectively mindfully in a way to create memories that last. What can we do to best maintain the functioning of this really important part of our brains? Yeah, so aside from the fact that we can uh, reduce the number of distractions that we have in daily life, this is really, I mean, one of the things that got me so interested in the prefrontal cortex was the time that I spent in the clinic, where most of the time what was happening is that people had all sorts of things that were sapping their prefrontal resources. And by that, I mean things like they weren't sleeping well. They might have stress and uh, major depressive disorder, for instance. Those are things that sap the prefrontal cortex. So there's lots and lots of factors that can sap those resources. But conversely, there's a lot of factors that we can do to improve those resources. So, for instance, one of the things, uh, you know, sleep plays a big role in restoring the functions of the prefrontal cortex. Aerobic exercise can dramatically improve the functioning of that region of the brain. Stress reduction, mindfulness training can improve uh, improve the function of these brain areas. Okay, so following doctor's orders, keeping yourself fit and healthy. But what about the impact of booze, which a lot of people would admit most impairs their memory? What does alcohol do to the brain exactly? Yeah, yeah. So alcohol has a bunch of different effects. One is is that it just is an amnestic drug. It, it 
block some of the changes that you'd want to see biologically so that a memory will stick around. Another is, it's a fascinating thing, is that alcohol uh, changes your mental context, meaning that there's a very clear feeling that you have after you have a few drinks that puts you in a particular state of mind. And when you're sober, it's very hard to remember because you can't get into that state of mind that you were in when you're drunk. No matter what, you find that people overall remember more poorly the experiences that happen when they're under the influence of alcohol. And then there's the other things, which is that chronic alcohol use will affect sleep. It'll affect your ability to be resilient to stress. And so it's contributing to all of these changes, and it's bad for your brain in the long term. So there's really alcohol is one of the ultimate memory blockers that we subject ourselves to. Coming up, how can you use your memory more productively? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. Charan, can you tell me about the science of how we retain memories of the past? How does that change over time? I'm thinking specifically about when I was a kid and I'd hear my parents tell stories and then they'd retell them and they'd change over time. And you're sat there thinking, why are you exaggerating this? Why are you embellishing so much? And then you realize as an adult that you've grown up and you're doing the exact same thing. And it's hard to remember which bit really happened and how much was a slight exaggeration. So yeah, how does memory change over time? Yeah, so there are two parts of the story, as it turns out. So one part is that 
I mentioned earlier that we don't actually commit to memory everything that we've ever experienced, right? But there are these certain moments that we seem to grab. And when we remember those things, what we do is we use those little bits and pieces that we did successfully for our memories for. And then we use that as seeds for imagining how things could have panned out in the past. But when we imagine, we can create things that sometimes didn't happen. The act of accessing a memory changes it a bit. So now you have a memory for something old, like the things that you might talk about with your parents, for instance. And every time they tell that story, there's a little bit of new information that can get incorporated and mixed up with the old information. And so what happens is over time, the more we access that same event, the more it becomes unmoored from what actually happened. And the more of these ingredients are coming into the memory that are based on things that we imagined but didn't actually necessarily happen. But I find what you're saying fascinating. Like I can appreciate the positives, but as a journalist, you can understand I also find it incredibly alarming when you're dealing with facts and what you believe to be solid facts. If the idea of when I remember something and then I access that memory again and again, it changes slightly over time every time I access it. I mean, does that then mean that some of our fondest memories, for instance, can be our most unreliable so I wouldn't say that if you have a memory that you cherish that it's wrong or incorrect necessarily. But yes, you probably are likely to embellish it somewhat. And a lot of those details that are a little bit peripheral to the event, those are the things that you can't necessarily trust as well. But on the positive side, we can change our relationship with the past. One of the biggest factors in reshaping our memory is just the act of sharing it with other people. And so it can take on a completely different meaning, which can be quite positive, because if you have traumatic experiences, say, you want to be able to revisit the past in a way that allows you to access that information and learn from it without it being radioactive. Because if I share a past experience with you, I'm doing that with some kind of goal of communicating it to you. And that shapes how I remember it. And you can reflect that information back on me and share your experiences with it. And so now I can change the way my perspective and remember that event differently. Let's talk more about the past for a second because I'm interested in what you say about nostalgia in the book. For instance, I find people often do this with their adolescence or their youth where they ruminate over a period in their lives and are only able to remember the good things, even though I'm sure there were some truly terrible moody parts. Or, you know, we all have that friend that you sort of slightly want to shake because <laughs> they had a horrible time in their relationship, but they can only now look back at it with very rose-tinted glasses and feel incredibly wistful about their terrible acts. Yeah, so uh, there's a number of factors. So uh, one is that, uh, you know, when we look back at the past, again, we're looking at it from the perspective of a goal, usually. And sometimes that goal is to make us feel better or to seek comfort, right? So um, looking back and, you know, looking back in nostalgia can be a very good thing. Mm -hmm. So there is this positive memory bias, I think, that many people have, but that positive memory bias can lead to this nostalgia that's toxic, where people say, 
the past was so great and the present is not like that. It's not living up to what I came to expect of life from the past. But like I said, when we're revisiting the past, we're getting a biased sample of all these things that we've experienced. We're not picking up the boring things. We're not necessarily picking up the things that we don't want to think about, right? So um, that can give us this illusory sense that life used to be good and it's not good anymore. Or in the case of thinking about this at the collective level, thinking about life in America used to be good and it's not great anymore and we have to make America great again, right? <laughs> and so um, that's a kind of a toxic nostalgia that really contaminates your sense of the present. And that's why the word nostalgia was actually coined by a Swiss physician who described it as a disease, not as something that was necessarily positive. Well, it seems like the memory's doing a delicate dance here because, as you said, recording positive events can create a happier life. But at the same time, nostalgia and thinking that the best days were behind you, either for you or the entire country in the case of America, also not helpful. So is there a healthier way of thinking about the past? Yeah, I think it's that... If there's one message I really wanted people to take away in the book is that memory is not even about the past. The reason we have this capability is about the present and about the future. It's this pool of resources that we can draw upon. It's not some kind of a deterministic thing that is, you know, a static record of the past, but it's really something that we can draw upon flexibly in useful ways. So if I'm looking back on these great experiences in my life, I can do that to say to myself, how can I learn from that experience? So there's research showing if I look back on times when I was altruistic and kind, that can make you more likely to be altruistic in the present. Uh, sometimes what I think is really helpful is to look back on things that are actually inconsistent with how you're feeling right now to flesh out and give you more information about what you could do in the present. Like when we feel stuck, rather than just being stuck in the past, say, what can I learn from that past experience to help me navigate what's going on right now, the situation that I'm troubled with? Likewise, we can look back on those painful experiences and say, what did we learn from that? You could look back with your ex and say, why is that person my ex in the first place? Why did it go so that, badly? Be a good way how to can I it. avoid making that mistake in the future? And I think a lot of us get stuck making the same mistakes over and over because we see the past as something that is the past as opposed to something that we can learn from and grow from. Well, Sharon, as a final question, and for all those feeling fired up by this new year or any of those still nursing post-Christmas exhaustion, what is your top tip for a healthy mind and improved memory in 2024? pause. Often I'm in such a rush that I'm not actually mentally there. I've really turned off my prefrontal cortex because I'm responding to one crisis after another. And I've really tried to incorporate a pause. I actually put in my you know monitor these post-it notes that say pause. And uh, that allows me to take a break for a moment, step outside of the things that are you know, consuming me in the moment and say, hey, what's going on here? And I ground myself in the present. And that also gives me time to reflect on what's happening right now in a way that I can, you know, be constructive with and, you know, focused on. I think the, the other power of the pause is it actually keeps us from remembering too much. Sometimes we get stuck in our head and like I said, you don't want to remember things all the time. You want to use it as a resource. So essentially, stop 
take a moment to be in the moment. What else works? Uh, change your context from time to time. Try to uh, make sure to curate your memories in a way so that when you look back next year, you'll have a bunch of memorable experiences that you want to pull from. You never know which is going to be the moment that you carry with you for the rest of your life, right? And so I find a change of context really helps me when I go to different places. It gives me a distinctive memory that I can look back on fondly. You know, even when you go on holidays, try to document those moments that put you back in that place in time. Don't take pictures of every site that you see, but take a picture of, you know, your uh, spouse or your child, like, laughing. Take a picture of some goofy statue that you see. Things that will put you back in that moment. And I think um, taking this approach of quality over quantity and less is more with memory really can help you in the long run. Charan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been fantastic. That was Dr. Charan Ranganath, Director of the Memory and Plasticity Program and Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of California at Davis. His book, which of course I highly recommend, is called Why We Remember. It's out in March, but you can pre-order it now. Finally, over the coming weeks, our colleagues at Garden US are running a new series called Reclaim Your Brain. There'll be articles, a free six-week newsletter, all to help you reduce your screen time in the new year. Find it all at theguardian.com. And as far as I can remember, that's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal. The producer was Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Solomon King, and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. A very happy new year from all of us. We're back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed the findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.